when I feel frantic on the inside, it's like my soul is being held hostage by hustle, and I feel like I have to build a ladder to get somewhere that I'm not. But when I think of those benches, I think, how can I tear the ladder apart and use the wood to build a bench? What does it look like to sit down on the inside in this moment, no matter what part of my life I'm thinking about? And that has made all the difference for me. If your world is moving too fast, or if your soul is held hostage by hustle, if you're not sure bigger and faster is actually better, well, then this Hopology podcast is for you. Real life happens in the small moments, uh, the kind of moments we find on the most ordinary day of the week, like Tuesday. And Emily has written a book about it. The book is Simply Tuesday, Small Moment Living in a Fast-Moving World. You can find it at simplytuesday.com, along with the free video series that goes with it. Welcome to the Hopeology Podcast. I'm Gary, dad of Michael and Emily. Together, we're a family of hopers. We try to chip away at discouragement and find delight right now in our homes, our families, and our souls. This episode, you'll find encouragement to embrace small beginnings, find contentment right where you are, step off the ladder, sit a while on the bench, plus the Haley's Comet pilgrimage 29 years ago that's part of our family hall of fame, and the bench story later. But first, sometimes things in your life that seem random or separate are really part of one thing. It all fits, but you may not see it till later. Um, Grace for the Good Girl was my first book, and I think once I wrote it, I realized, oh, this whole book, the whole purpose of this book is to um, talk to a person who might not understand or realize or think about the fact that Christ is in us. It's not just like, oh, God is out there and I'm trying to copy him. No, he's He's in me and 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 wants to live life with me. So that book was all about, you know, God is in me. And then... Graceful was a book for teenagers, so it, and it, but it was a similar message as the first one, so that was kind of the same thing. Um, the second book, second second message was A Million Little Ways, and that book was all about, um, you know, we're each made differently, we're all made in God's image, but we're each have a little different, a different way that we're going to express Him in our lives. And so that book, while the first book was uh, Christ is in you, the second book is Christ. Christ wants to live his life through you. So that book was sort of like, and it's going to look different for everybody. So Christ is in you, Christ lives his life through you. And then this book, Simply Tuesday, um, as I've been writing it and even looking back having written it, I realized, oh, that book is all about Christ is with you. Um, like we don't we don't walk into each of these regular moments of our everyday lives. We don't walk into them alone, that we walk into those with someone um, and so I look at that progression, I see, yes, they're all different books, but I'm one person, you know, and so I just I feel like each of those books as I've written them, I've sort of learned a different, um, a little different part of my relationship with Christ has come out in each of those God, Christ is in me, he wants to live his life through me. And he's also with me. So where does the idea for living small come from? Well, there's a little story to that about discovering how small you really might be. So Simply Tuesday was part of a two-book deal. I signed a, a deal to write A Million Little Ways. That's the book I had the idea for. That's the book the publisher bought. But 
you know, because they thought, you know, we've worked with Emily before. It was the same publisher I did for my first two books. They said, um, and my and my agent agreed that let's go ahead and do a two book contract uh, so that whatever next idea Emily has, we're going to go ahead and buy that one, too. And so I went ahead and signed the contract, not knowing what the second book was going to be. I think on the contract, it's untitled nonfiction work, you know. And so um, they pay you even though so they don't crazy. know what they're getting. <laughs> they pay you even though they don't know what you're getting. And um yeah, and it's you have sort of, sort of loose deadlines, but nothing was set in stone. They just know that you're going to have an, another idea one day, and we want to go ahead and pay you for it before you have it, <laughs> which some people think is great job security. I felt like it was an invitation to the loony bin a little bit. I'm not sure if I'll do that again. But it shows they trust you. It shows they trust you. It, you know, Esther, um, our agent, we share an agent, a fa- our family agent, um, talks about how it's great to have them, you know, because that means they're invested in you. That means that they're not really signing you up for a book, but they're kind of in this with you. And, and that's, that's good to hear, thing. isn't it? That gives you confidence. It gives you confidence. I wouldn't want to sign an, you know, like a 20 book deal because that's a little too much, you know, but like there is a sweet spot, I think. It's Two like telling your kids, okay. I know you can do it. I know you can do it. Yeah. Yeah, it is kind of, but it's also on the when you're the side of it and you sign the thing and then you don't have an idea. Uh, it can be terrifying. So I was sort of in that spot of I had turned in a million little ways. I think it was it had even come out. It came out in October of twenty thirteen. And so it was around Thanksgiving when I'm like, Okay, I need to start working on my next book. Um Grace for the Good Girl came out on September 1st, 2011, and I turned in book number two on September 1st, 2011. Oh my gosh, that makes me want so, to go to bed. It was the same day that my book released, and I turned my manuscript in. That's yeah. so horrible. <laughs> I can't believe I did that. But that was before I knew what. That's before how, you knew better. what things were up. Yeah, I didn't understand how the world works. <laughs> so I started thinking through. But it was it was during I don't I think it was Thanksgiving. We came to Charlotte for Thanksgiving. A million Little Ways was out in the world for a couple weeks, and I was starting to roll around ideas in my mind of what the next book would be, untitled nonfiction. Uh, what, what's it going to be? But I was at your house, Michaelin, and you had a – Chad, I guess, had a subscription to – what was it? Men's Journal? Men's – what was that magazine? One of those men magazines. Men's Journal magazine. Yeah. Yeah. December issue. And I picked it up, and I started reading this article um, about – the night sky, something about the sky. And I started reading it and it started out with a story about um, an earthquake that happened in January of 94. And it was in Los Angeles and it caused a lot of like damage and, and people died and it was a big deal. But during that earthquake, the city's power went out. So people started to call the observatory and they were reporting that there was this strange cloud in the sky. And they said, maybe that cloud is what's caused somehow caused the earthquake. And so the director who was receiving the calls, he was like, what on earth is going on? But then he realized that because the city lights went out that night, um, that this is the first time maybe ever that the people in Los Angeles looked up in the sky and and saw the Milky Way, that they saw a dark sky. They'd never seen a dark sky before. And so that silver cloud was not, in fact, an earthquake-causing alien type of thing, but it was uh, the Milky Way. I get the chills every time I hear that. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And the thing is, when I was at your house and I read that article, I think I laughed out loud because I was like, those idiots, those silly people looking up in the sky and think. And then I thought, oh, wait, I've never seen the Milky Way. Did you go outside and look? I tried to. (laughs) You can see the Milky Way at Michaelin's house. 
But it was sobering for me because I realized that while I laughed at the citizens of Los Angeles only moments before, then I started to wonder, I wonder if I would have called the observatory and said, there's a cr- there's a strange cloud in the sky from outer space, and everyone <laughs> needs to take cover because we are not safe, and that has caused an earthquake. Wow. I might have done that. But, I, but if you think about it, and, and the guy in the home journal, he said that we are not used to seeing a clear view of the solar system. We don't look up. We just, if it gets dark outside, we turn our lights on. And when I turn, I mean, I turn lights on in my house like it's like of course every room in my house has to be lit up because I like lamp light and it's lovely but I wonder how much of that for me is control like when John's out of town I turn my lights on because I feel safer that way am I really truly safer not necessarily but I just feel like I have more control when I have control of the lights but I wonder if I had a more regular view of the stars in the sky a more regular reminder of my size on earth, if it would uh, change how I feel in my soul, if I maybe would stop trying to control outcomes and realize that I really can't control outcomes. I really need to depend on a source outside of myself. That's a question that I've been leaning into for the past year or two as I've been writing this book. And that's sort of something that I've been exploring and learning about in lots of different areas of my life. Anytime you feel like you're hot stuff, you know, you can walk outside at night and look up. and Just look up. Even if you can't see the Milky Way, you can see something, some star or something. Airplane. And you know it's so far away from you and it's so big, you must be really teeny. Well, and you talk about this in your book, too, that for most of the world's existence, that was everyone's experience at night. That was normal. And Michael, when we went to Africa together last year, remember, I don't know if you remember, I was sitting by the air window when we either f- were flying home or, or landing, but it was dark. And I will never forget looking down at, I guess it was over Uganda, um, sort of when you're not quite landing, but you're still way, you're still high up, but you're getting ready to land. So you can kind of get a little bit better idea of the landscape. And I remember looking down, you couldn't see city lights anywhere. Let me as far as the eye could see from the airplane. Do you remember? It looks like little fires. Yes, all I over. remember that. Yeah. Little orange glows. Little fires. Dotted all over the, and it it's like, you know, it wasn't lights because there was no uh, rhythm to it. Like there was no s- pattern. Right. It was all just dots on the dark landscape. And I thought, wow, it's 2015 or 2014 at that time. And, and they're all talking by firelight. I wonder what that's like. Yeah. I But they, I feel like they have a, they have a good idea of their size on earth and they have, you know, a just... It's just a different, a whole different existence. So when I I went back to Columbus, Indiana, our hometown where we were born, um, as I was writing Simply Tuesday, actually, I I just felt like I needed to go back to where it all began. (laughs) It's a weird pilgrimage, but but I went back to Shiloh Baptist Church where we went to church. And remember how when we would drive to church in the morning with mom, it felt like a 45-minute drive. Oh, it was so far away. Why did mom and dad choose a church so, so far, far away? away? Through cornfields and over rivers. And I mean, it was like such a long drive. And how far is it really? 10 minutes. It was 10 minutes from <laughs> our house because I drove it from our house or where we lived on Gladstone Avenue. I was sh- shocked, I tell you. When I pulled up on it, I was like, oh, that little church looks like Shiloh, but that can't be it because... I haven't been driving long enough, um, but there it was. And I so I, I pulled up and 
grab a parking lot. I even grabbed a handful of rocks because just to keep, because that's what I do. You find feathers, I find rocks. <laughs> like Charlie Brown. What can I collect? Um, <laughs> I'll collect <Sticks>. bird poop. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I even tried, I tried to go inside the building, but it was locked. Um, but I ran around to the side where like they still, there's still that little water tank thing is over there. Um, Wow, I can't believe what you remember. I don't even remember that. No, the water tank, I took a picture of it because it was so familiar. I don't propane. Know. It was propane. It was propane? <laughs> you took Listen. a picture of a propane tank? It's in my little kid mind. It was a water tank. It's a utility thing. But it was familiar. It's nothing romantic. No, it was familiar. It doesn't matter. I don't take it because it's romantic. I take it because it's like home. Oh my gosh. It, home doesn't have to be pretty. Even a utility propane, propane tank can, can be home <laughs> and feel like home. That should have been on the cover of this book. <laughs> <laughs> propane. Yeah. It was propane. Oh propane tank with stars above it. <laughs> but I took a picture and I stood there because that's kind of around the spot where we went to watch Haley's Comet when we were little. Now, mom says that she's the one who took us out there. <laughs> But I think, Dad, I think either it you both his insistence, <laughs> but it was on your insistence because you're the one who made us write the report. And I remember um, the homework part of it is maybe what sticks in my mind more than even the thing, because I don't really. Michael, do you remember, like, seeing the comet? Yes. Hey, comet? I Tell remember looking it. through the binoculars in the right area. It was very anticlimactic. And there was nothing. They all looked the same. All of the dots looked the same. I thought, I was like, okay, this is going to be awesome. Now, where is the rainbow of fruit flavor blasting <laughs> right. Where are the unicorns? Where are our faces <laughs> lit up where by Haley's comment? Oh, <laughs> the loud sound of the comment passing by. <laughs> Where's the wind on my face? I don't, I'm not, I just didn't quite. But I mean, we went because it was history. But, you know, I think I'm so glad we went because it's there was something about um, I'm glad you and mom had the presence of mind to get us out of bed at an ungodly hour because it was dark. I don't know if we either I don't know if it was the middle of the night or if it was like way early in the morning. I don't remember. But I do remember it was cold and dark and it wasn't it wasn't like a normal like, oh, it's seven o'clock. Let's go watch this. It was an odd time. But I if there's something about knowing that's only going to come around every, what is it, 70 years? 76 years. And just knowing that we can see it in our lifetime. And the next time it comes around, if I'm alive, I'm going to be old. And there's something um, about that that helps me to f see my place in my life and my place on earth. It's sort of like being able to see the Milky Way. It's it's like you and mom understood that, that it's important to like see this thing that that even if it's not spectacular and even if it doesn't change your life, that it's important to mark things that are bigger than you and to be a part of something that's bigger than you and sort of to celebrate your smallness um, in the midst of something that's kind of you thought was going to be spectacular, but then it ends up not being. But it kind of still is because it's only comes around once every 76 years. Its meaning isn't in its spectacularness. It, right, exactly. Do you still have our reports, Dad? Actually, I came across Michael and's. <laughs> Do you have it right now? I think report? it's. I might be able to get it in one second. Hold on. Oh, worth it. <laughs> Hashtag <on>. worth it. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> I don't know that it's good or bad that he might have it. Mm -hmm.
dad just came back. Okay. Well, does he have paper in his hands? Yeah. Yep. Well, this folder. folder this folder has been unopened oh. since 1986. Seal it. It says Michaelin Haley Comet. You should look at. You should read it. Okay. Do you want me to read it, Emily? Yes. 100% chance. Okay. So this is the report that mom and dad made Michael and Wright after going to see Haley's Comet in 1986. <laughs> it is four pages going long. Going to see it as if we went to the comet. You know, right. we drove there. <laughs> okay, here goes. Mom woke us up at four o'clock in the morning. She said that Irene oh, was going to pick us up at 430 I was half asleep, so I left my PJs on, which was really my sweatsuit. I put Tommy, my teddy, robe on and put some socks on. At 4.10, Irene came. She's always early, and we headed for Shiloh Baptist out in the country. Irene started talking to Mom and turned. Then Mom screamed, Irene, you're on the wrong side of the road. (laughs) (laughs) Not much has changed. (laughs) When we got there, Irene told us just to lock the door so she could keep her purse in the car. Then she wanted the doors unlocked in case we had to run back into the car. You needed needed a little lesson in main idea writing. (laughs) It's more like news reporting. (laughs) We got out and it was freezing. Irene told us all about her reading in the paper that it was right under the right-hand side of the tea kettle constellation but close to the horizon but whenever we saw something away from there she said that wasn't it so we looked and looked every time a car came by we all hid me and Emily (laughs) why (laughs) because it was two women and two little girls in the country in the middle of the night in the dark okay okay um (laughs) me and Emily stood by mom and so no one could jump out and get us Uh, Wow, this was full of fear. (laughs) That was our whole childhood. I know, fear training. (laughs) All I did was look up and I was afraid that if I looked around, I'd see something move. It was only 4.30 and I remember, and Irene told Brother Dan's wife, Victoria, that she would be looking for her at 5 a.m. They lived- She was the pastor. Right behind the church. So we waited in the car until 5. Then we drove about 20 feet to see if Victoria was up. <laughs> so not about the comment. <laughs> Why did we drive 20 feet? I think you had a page requirement now that I remember back. <laughs> and she was looking out the window waiting for us. And we were all behind a van at the time she was looking out the window. Then we got out of the car and Victoria and her daughter Sarah came out and Irene told them the teapot story for the seventh time. Victoria looked where Irene said it wasn't, and she said, I think I see it. And she was right. My hands were freezing, but I wanted to see it so bad that I took the binoculars and looked around, and right under the triangle was a faint, whitish, clear, smoky speck, about as big as this. And I drew a fat period. (laughs) (laughs) With no binoculars, it's this big. I drew a regular size period. Irene started talking about seeing it with the naked eye, and as soon as she said with her eyes, he yelled out, Oh, there it is! There it is! That was after everyone had seen it with the binoculars and without. 
Apparently, we were annoyed with Irene. Mm. God rest her soul. (laughs) (laughs) Then the prettiest sight you ever saw came. It was a falling star. It looked like a comet, but it was with pink and purple at the bottom. We got into the car and started home. When we got to Gladstone, Mom yelled out, Irene, you're on the wrong side of the road. (sighs) Again? Again? I guess. Maybe this was just drama. When we got in, it was 5.50. Emily and I crawled into bed, and it took me 20 minutes to get my hair. What? (laughs) Oh, to get my hands warm. (laughs) Thanks for making us do that, Dad. (laughs) Oh, that's so funny. See, in my memory, Mom and Dad took us. And I even wrote it that way in the book. Wow. It makes it sound like Dad was there, because in my mind, he was there. But I think he was there as the invisible teacher making us write a report. Yes. Maybe that's why. Because I wanted to fulfill my duty of writing the report. I was very responsible. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's funny. Haley's Comet, man. Haley's Comet. You should share about the bench. Yeah, the bench is on the cover of the book. So we moved into the house two doors down from John's brother. And he had a little girl at the time and another a baby who came soon after. We had, our kids were, the twins were four Luke was two. They were all little. They played out in the cul-de-sac a lot. So we were always out in the cul-de-sac. And the the cul-de-sac has a a grassy area in the middle. And so the the pavement acts like a track, you know, like, okay, we ride our bikes and our trikes and our scooters and all the things around on the track. Round and round and round you go. So we spent a lot of time out there. One day, John's mom, Sherry, was over. I mean, she was over a lot because, you know, all her grandkids live in one (laughs) cul-de-sac. And she suggested that we get a bench for the cul-de-sac. But she, like, she'll make a suggestion. And then, like, half a second later, she fulfills her own request. (laughs) So she shows up with a bench one day. And we put it together, put it in the cul-de-sac. A neighbor got another bench that matched it because she loved the idea so much. So at that time, we had two benches. And we still do the same two benches sitting in the middle of the cul-de-sac. And so we spent a lot of time out there. And one day, I noticed how a couple of our neighbors... Um, it looked like when I watched, I looked outside, it looked like they had maybe called one another and said, let's meet on the benches in the cul-de-sac because they walked out of their houses at the same time and sat on the benches. And they were, you know, some of our, our neighbors that live between us and our my in-laws. And so I went out there to just say hello, talk with them. And, you know, they were just talking about normal stuff, neighborly stuff. They've lived in the cul-de-sac for over 40 years. So they have a lot of history together. Their kids grew up on the cul-de-sac, maybe their kids you know, used the cul-de-sac as a track too a long, long time ago. And so they were talking about that and I joined in and I went back inside, finished making dinners, what I was doing at the time. They stayed out there for a long time, over an hour. Um, and they'd never done that before. And I thought, isn't that nice? Before we had the benches, I had never seen them outside talking to one another before. But now that we had those benches, everything was different. And it didn't really change the fact that they had things to talk about. It didn't solve any of the world's problems. Um, But all it did was it gave the neighbors a place to be, a place to connect, and a place to talk on an ordinary day about ordinary things. And so for me in my life at that time, I think I was working on one of my earlier books. And for me at that time, that was a great metaphor for me as a writer. Because I thought as a writer, All I'm doing for people, whether I'm writing a blog post, whether I'm um, writing books or a chapter, I'm not coming up with something new. I'm not trying to change the world with my words. What I'm trying to do is enter a conversation that's already happening 
and give people a place to do that. Give people maybe some words, some concepts, some metaphors that they haven't maybe had before or they haven't thought of in that way. Um, but it's a conversation that's already going on. And so it sort of, for me, took the pressure off as a writer because I thought, I don't have to build this giant platform so that I can stand on a platform and um, everyone, my platform has to be great before I can have any influence. But instead of building a platform, um, it was a great gift for me to have the image of that bench in my cul-de-sac because I thought uh, instead of building a platform, I can build a bench for people to sit on. A platform is a place where many can stand, where it's, you know, you stand up there and it's like me, look at me, spotlight on me, maybe in my mind, that's how I think of it. But a bench is simply a place to rest for two people. A couple of people can fit on a bench, maybe three, you know, if if you want to squeeze in. But it's it's small, it's simple, but it makes a difference. And those benches have been a nice gathering place for our community. Um, and so as I've thought about what it means to be small, what it means to look up into the sky and, and know my own place on earth, the benches have been a great metaphor for me. Whether I'm thinking about my home, whether I'm thinking about my family, my work, like I mentioned before, or even making plans for the future, instead of getting all carried away, like, how can I, you know, in my mind, sometimes my soul, I get a little, I get a little, uh, frantic. I can get frantic in my soul because, and I realize when I'm doing that, I can always identify when I feel frantic on the inside, it's like my soul is being held hostage by hustle. And I feel like I have to build a ladder to get somewhere that I'm not. But when I think of those benches, I think, how can I tear the ladder apart and use the wood to build a bench? What does it look like to sit down on the inside in this moment, no matter what part of my life I'm thinking about? And that has made all the difference for me. When, when you guys, um, you know, you guys lived in Greensboro, mom and dad, you lived in Greensboro. And I remember I had, I was in Columbia, South Carolina, going to college and I decided to transfer to UNCG in Greensboro. And I remember I had to move home so that we could get in-state tuition. I was going to live in Columbia for the summer, but they required me to live in Greensboro for a certain amount of time. So I moved home to Greensboro so that I could get in-state tuition at the University of North Carolina in Greensboro. And so I remember, um, you know, you guys had lived there for, I don't know, a year, maybe, but uh, you li- you lived here, ended up staying for about four years. And dad, I remember you got a job in Austin and you guys left Greensboro and I had to find a roommate and stay here and finish out school. And I always thought of Greensboro as sort of um, a passageway to something else. I knew that I was going to come here for school and get my degree in educational interpreting for the deaf. But after that, I was probably going to go and do something different. You know, in fact, Greensboro is called the gate city because when they, um, when they built the town, they put the, the railroad went right through it, goes right through and it's sort of as a gate city from other places in North Carolina, you have to go through Greensboro to get to other places. Um, but you don't really think of Greensboro as a destination, like just in your, you know, people think Greensboro is great because it's, you can drive a couple hours, get to the mountains on one side of North Carolina. You can drive a few hours and get to the beach on the other side, North Carolina. Greensboro is kind of a nice central location. Um, so in my mind, it's just sort of in a comparison way, I sort of thought as Greensboro is sort of my own personal gate city. I'm going to go there for school and get what I need, but then I'm going to move on. So I sort of saw it as a gate in my own life. Um, as it turns out, I met John here in Greensboro. His, he's grew up here. His fa- whole family, you know, his immediate whole family lives here. We now live on, you know, we live on the same cul-de-sac as his brother. Um, and so everybody lived here for him. And this was sort of his home. Um, I met him. We fell in love. We got engaged. We ended up getting married here in Greensboro. Um, but 
I remember when we were engaged, I you guys had already moved to Austin. And here I was already staying in Greensboro longer than I thought I would because I thought it was just a gate city onto something else. And I was still here. Um, John and I got to know each other, dated, got engaged. I'm telling the story all backwards. But I remember I was looking for a wedding gown. Mom, you guys came for Christmas. We found a dress at Christmas time. And that spring I had to get it altered. And Sherry, John's mom, you know, she's lived here for 40 years or whatever. She had like a person for everything. I mean, she had, oh, your dryer's broken. I have a guy for that. So she had a seamstress that she liked to use. And she told me where to go. She gave me directions of where to go. The seamstress lived on this little quiet cul-de-sac, kind of, you know, central town kind of. And I drove up to her house and took my wedding dress. And her name was Carmela. And I remember standing in her split-level house. She worked on my dress. And the house reminded me of Grandma Moreland's house because it was just kind of the same age as that house. And I just remember feeling like, oh, it's this kind of familiar feeling. And I think I probably left her house that day with my mind on lots of wedding-oriented type of things, still thinking of Greensboro as a gate. But in fact, what I didn't know at the time is that I had pulled into the very cul-de-sac where I was going to raise our own kids because Miss Carmela is now my two-doors-down neighbor. And wow. It's mind-boggling. It's such an interesting story because for me personally, because I had seen Greensboro as a gate. But in fact, Greensboro is a cul-de-sac for me. This is a place where I'm, I've stayed for 17 years and never really planned on it. And so there's something about celebrating my own smallness and thinking about my life as I can make plans and I can have things that I think about and, and ways where places I think I'm going to go. But in truth, I don't really know. And some places I think our gates are actually cul-de-sacs. And some places we think our cul-de-sacs might turn out to be gates. And we don't always know and we can't control outcomes. But as I walk with my friend Jesus into the next ordinary moment, I can trust that he's going to help me discern which parts of my life are gates and which parts are cul-de-sacs. I'm so thankful for this cul-de-sac, for this literal cul-de-sac I live in, but I never would have known to ask for that. And I certainly wouldn't have imagined that my seamstress would be, be one day my neighbor. <laughs> awesome. Yay. <laughs> I can't believe that. It's crazy. I know. It's crazy. It's crazy. But that we can sometimes we get glimpses of our future when we're not paying attention. It's lovely. And she was one of the one of the women who went out to the shuffle to the benches that day. She was one of them who sat and, and talked with friends on in the middle of the cul-de-sac. So yeah. To connect with Michaelin, visit thenester.com. To connect with Emily, visit chattingatthesky.com. And to get Emily's book, Simply Tuesday, and the free video series that goes with it, visit simplytuesday.com. Thanks for listening to the Hopeology Podcast.